Human resources, employee relations, the legal department are aligned against you. Your employer has trained for this day, the day you've become an expendable number at work. There are robust laws that may protect you, but unlike the company, you've not been drilled on how to wield them. You're playing catch-up. There are pitfalls to avoid and countermeasures to deploy that may save your job or put you in the best position to negotiate a favorable settlement. Minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. The Walking Papers podcast offers the first foray into learning how to turn the tables when you've been targeted at work. Knowledge is power. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Walking Papers podcast. I am your host, Robert Ingalls. I am here with attorney Josh Van Campen. How are you today, Josh? I am doing pretty well. All right. The title of today's episode is, You Want Me on That Wall? You Need Me on That Wall. How to Prove Your Discrimination Case Without Colonel Jessup Admitting He Ordered the Code Red. Tell us about these clever episode titles, Josh. Uh, well, uh, you know, I picked that one because I've always wanted to have that moment as a lawyer <laughs> and be uh, caffy and uh, and get a discriminatory decision maker to admit that they they basically discriminated against someone. And, and I still haven't been able to do it. Yeah, and, I, uh, I never got that damn right I did moment in my career either. Yeah, I know, and I'm like, I think I'm 21 years in at this point. I should have been able to score that by now. But um but in all seriousness, it, it illustrates a reality in, in employment discrimination cases, which is that there are no Colonel Jessup code red moments, really. And so when we're when we're about to uh, tackle and to try to prove that a discriminatory event happened in the workplace, there's there's never an admission for it, and so it's uh, you know it's inherently a challenging thing to do. Now there aren't a lot of plaintiff side employment lawyers in Charlotte or really any other city. Why is that? Well, because we're having to prove, you know, intent. Um, and as I was thinking about how to teach the listeners about, uh, about this is like, for example, in a, in a murder situation, the, the act of the murder itself, if you are proven to have murdered someone, you're guilty, regardless of what your motive is, you're guilty of the murder. It may be depending on what degree is it manslaughter, is it involuntary manslaughter, depending what is in your head. But the murder, the proven murder itself is itself a violation of criminal law. In the employment law setting, the mere fact that a termination occurred is of no moment. That doesn't mean it's illegal. We have to prove what was in the decision maker's head and making that that termination decision, for example. So it's it's a heavy lift. Uh, a lot of lawyers would rather analyze an accident scene than a termination scene. Sure. How do we go about proving that discrimination then? Well, fortunately, it's actually not as hard as it sounds. So in any uh, under all the employment uh, discrimination laws, uh, the standard is because of. So we have to prove that a termination occurred because of someone's protected status, for example, or because they engaged in, you know, some sort of protected activity. And fortunately, because of does not mean the only reason. So we don't have to show that a particular decision maker fired an employee only because they were 55, not only because it can be it just has to be an important enough factor in combination with other things to tip the scale in favor of a termination. So, for example, 
we can concede that a manager may have been considering our client's performance and deciding whether or not to terminate them. Maybe there were some performance issues. But if we can prove that it was our client's age, being over 55, that tipped that scale, even if it was only the straw, that's enough for us to prove discrimination. And then the other thing uh, we have going for us, uh, you know, in, in comparison to what the burden of proof is in cr the criminal setting, which is beyond a reasonable doubt, in the civil setting, it's called preponderance of the evidence. Um, and so preponderance of the evidence is only 50.0001% of the evidence. So whenever we're educating a jury about what that means, you know, we're literally using our hands and saying, look, it, this doesn't need to be decisive. Our evidence doesn't need to be decisive, not even close. It just has to be that 50.001% of the evidence. So that, that, that is a hurdle that you can get over on a good case. And then, then finally, the, the United States Supreme Court in 1973, there's a landmark decision called called McDonnell Douglas v. Green, and I promise to the listeners I'll never cite another case. <laughs> I'm already Sometimes it's important. I'm already regretting it, but th this one is literally in the, the legal parlance. And so what the Supreme Court recognized in that case is that discrimination, when it occurs, it's not overt. There's, there's not going to be a smoking gun, you know, overwhelming majority of the time. And so, you know, there are two ways to prove discrimination. There's direct evidence of discrimination, which we're going to talk about first, and then there's indirect discrimination. And so when we get to indirect discrimination here in a couple minutes, the good news is even without a smoking gun, the Supreme Court has laid out a framework to prove discrimination. But uh, let's, let's start first and talk about like direct evidence of discrimination. It's rare to have those, but uh, we, can, we can start there. So direct evidence of discrimination is essentially an admission by the person who decided to terminate an employee that they considered whatever protected category there is. So now, is that something that you see frequently where you get these admissions? I've only had I've only had one case uh, where a court determined that there was direct evidence of discrimination. So no. So no. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what is encouraging for the listeners here though is that in that case, you know, largely it was a he said she said. So my my client testified to a a conversation that occurred in a termination meeting where a statement was made about, you know, her perception of his limitations uh, given a disability. And that she thought that he would do better in a less demanding uh, role. Now, she swore in her deposition she didn't say it, but my client said she did. And, you know, the court credited my client's account of that conversation. That was direct evidence because it was by the decision maker and it was about the termination decision that was being challenged in the lawsuit. And where people get a little overexcited about their evidence sometimes is where the decision maker has made a discriminatory comment, but maybe not about them. So let's say there was a supervisor who used the N-word toward another employee. And let's say it was even six months before the termination. That's certainly evidence of a, discrimin you know, a discriminatory animus, but that wasn't used in the context of explaining the termination decision itself. So... That's what's called circumstantial evidence of discrimination. It's not direct evidence because it's not directly tied to the termination decision itself. And you mentioned indirect evidence. What does that look like? Okay. 
So on indirect evidence, which like you were saying, uh, Rob, 95% of cases you know, fall in this rubric, you're, we're using this McDonnell-Douglas burden-shifting model. And uh, there are three phases to it. So the first phase is uh, where the plaintiff has to establish what's called a prima facie burden. And that's uh, Latin for based on first impression or something that's accepted as true right off the bat. So hopefully the listeners think I'm smarter than I am because I rolled a little Latin there. <laughs> I think I summarized it accurately. But um, but then getting you know getting back to these elements. So what does what does a plaintiff have to prove in a, a prima in this prima facie phase? It's just first of all you're in a protected group. So, uh, from, you know, maybe you're African American or Latino and even I want to, people that are white and are listening here, understand that just because you're white doesn't mean you're not protected from discrimination. You are, you just, uh, you're supposed to be held to the same standard as an African American, for example. So race discrimination across the board is unlawful. So are you in a protected class? Did you suffer an adverse action? It's a legal term, but really what that means is, you know, has something significantly bad happened to you? And so usually that has to be some sort of loss in pay. Maybe you were demoted, maybe you weren't promoted, you were fired, a written warning that resulted in you not getting a bonus, for example. And then you have to prove also that you were meeting the employer's legitimate job requirements. That doesn't mean you need to be a superstar. It just means that, you know, if you look at the basic job duties, were you able to do the basic job duties, which is almost always a yes. And then you just have to come forth with some sort of little bit of evidence to suggest that you might have been subjected to a double standard. So, for example, let's say you were fired, you're over 40, and you know there were four people on your team that weren't fired, and they were all under 40. There you're able to establish that there was somebody outside your class who received um, preferential treatment. So point is, on these prima facie elements, they're not supposed to be hard to prove. And so... The overwhelming majority of cases, this prima facie element is established. And then it switches to the employer, and the employer has to establish a, quote, legitimate non-discriminatory reason. So let me boil that down for you. It basically means any reason. And so I am serious in saying that an employer could justify a termination decision by saying that they believed the plaintiff was a devil worshiper. It could be complete BS. And that will be enough to satisfy the employer's showing. In other words, the employer just has to come forth with some reason, any reason. And then at that point, it shifts back to the plaintiff. And the plaintiff now has to prove that the employer's reason for the termination is, quote unquote, pretextual. And so pretextual is a legal term of art. So let me just translate that for you. Basically, what that means is that that the jury thinks that the employer's reason for the termination is fishy. Uh, that they don't they don't buy it. That sounds like that's probably one of the harder things to do. On um, on the pretext showing for me, I actually have so much fun proving pretext because nine times out of ten, the cases that we take to a jury or, or in court, we're very confident that the employer made up the reason for the termination. And you know, you're like a hound dog, just just chasing down and and exposing that this really wasn't the real reason for the termination. And so. Um, you know, I, I describe it as poking holes, sure. you know, so the employer just put, this is their story and then we poke holes in it. So what are some of the better ones you've seen? You know, I, I, they, I haven't had like the shoe in where they said it was a devil worshiper, you know, right. reason. <laughs> that, that one would be great. Yeah. Even though they can come up with a ridiculous reason, usually they come up with one that at least 
sounds okay, and then we and then we get to attacking it. So how how do we attack it? You know, one is um, in other words, translating. How do we establish that this reason is not believable? Well, one is shifting stories. So a lot of times in the moment. The, the manager will decide, you know, have a paper trail that they fired the employee for X reason, okay? Then we write a letter, and then they get talking to the legal department, and they decide that that's a pretty flimsy reason. And so now they're, they're like attaching, you know, ornaments and stuff to the tree to try to, to dress it up and make it more defensible. Well, that, that, that change in the story, that decorating of the tree is it can be evidence of pretext because if you have nothing to hide, then why are you changing your story? Right. Why are you adding things to it? Right. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes, you know, I've also had it where managers, uh, it's always fun when the managers start pointing fingers at each other. And uh, <laughs> this will literally happen where they'll, they'll point fingers and be like, oh, I, no, it wasn't my idea to fire your client. It was this other person's idea. So where any, any inconsistency in the employer's testimony about a termination can be evidence of pretext. Uh, another one is, let's say it's a conduct termination. So there needs to be an investigation into whatever sort of misconduct supposedly occurred. And they, they conduct a you know, ham-handed investigation where they only talk to like two people and there are five witnesses, for example. Or human resources investigated, but they didn't follow their own procedures to document the witness interviews. The inadequacy of an investigation can be evidence of pretext. And a, lot, a trap that a lot of employers fall into, too, and with a termination is... They, they try to couch it as a performance termination, but then there aren't documents to support it. So, you know, let's say the company has, you're supposed to be conducting evaluations annually, and they don't, they, they forgot to conduct like two years in a row. And now the employer is saying, oh, well, there were these performance issues in those two years. Yeah, but you didn't document it. You didn't follow your policy. And so, and that's why you see some employers almost over paper files because they're feeling like they need to do that. That's another example. And you can also, remember we talked about discriminatory comments earlier? You can heap those. Basically, you can heap virtually any piece of evidence on t- you know, in, in establishing pretext. It can be statistical evidence, discriminatory evidence, and then what, what I'll call like fishy evidence. And then finally, double standard. So can we establish that there were people outside your protected category who were treated more leniently than you. And if, and if there are, and a lot of times there are, that's a real hurdle for an employer to try to get over. Sure. So I know that frequently people generally, when they walk in your office, kind of have one burning question. And that is, you know, I've, whether I've been discriminated against at work or whether it's led to a termination, do I have a case? And you know, what, what should they be looking for? What do you walk them through there? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I always start in evaluating a case at, at looking for what I call low-hanging fruit. So uh, let's look at your the decision makers in your termination. Are the decision makers in your termination outside of your protected group? So if I'm representing an African-American plaintiff and they were fired by three managers, two of whom were African-American, that's that I not to say race discrimination can occur in that context, but it makes it harder. Whereas if we have an entirely white chain of command in that scenario, you know, that's a, a low-hanging fruit, good thing to see. And then looking at your replacement. So let's say you were replaced by somebody outside your protected category, especially somebody who wasn't as qualified as you. 
doesn't prove discrimination per se, but it's a low hanging fruit that I like I like to uh, like to see there. Kind of a low hanging rotten fruit that we want to try to avoid is where the person who has fired the employee also hired them. You know, close in time to the termination. In other words, it's hard to prove discrimination where that person hired, for example, somebody over 40, and then a year later they're fired and they're 41. Doesn't mean we can't prove it, but that's a that's a, a poisonous fruit where we don't want to see on the tree. Once you move beyond the low hanging fruit, for me, I'm, I'm focusing on my fishy meter, and I think mo- most listeners can can also apply that in general, but. It's really a highly technical uh, determination and and evaluating all the evidence to to determine whether or not you have uh, a viable case. All right. We have covered a lot of ground here today, and that brings us to our pitfalls to avoid and countermeasures to deploy section. You know, so um, on countermeasures, returning again to what we talked about, which is maximizing your opportunity to marshal your evidence while you're an employee. And when we talk about fishiness, for example, or pretext, one of the best ways to prove that is double standard. So if you are chronicling and keeping track of your peers and their performance or their conduct and they're getting free passes, as you know that you're, you're, you're being held to a, a higher standard, and you, and you can chronicle that by day, that's gold. You know, usually, because I don't want to be arguing after the fact, just in general, that Joe Schmo did the same thing. Where you're able to establish it on a day-to-day basis, that's huge. Same thing goes with, uh, you know, just emails and let's say calendar invites. Just any more paper you can give your lawyer, frankly, the better. And then the last thing is kind of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take, which is, you know, do no harm. It is critical that the listeners do no harm to their cases as as the discrimination and targeting is occurring, and um, and so one of those you know one of the ways that you can do harm, for example, is when you're being issued these disciplinary actions, you get angry, you storm off, you backtalk your manager, your supervisor. These are the sort of things that you're just giving the employer ammunition, and I just can't emphasize enough that we need to keep our side of the street clean so that uh, I or another lawyer can be effective for you. Congratulations for taking an important initial step in turning the tables at work. But this podcast is just an educational resource. It does not constitute legal advice and is no substitute for consulting an employment attorney about your unique situation before making legal decisions. Visit our website for more online resources and videos at ncemploymentattorneys.com. Or better yet, call 704-247-3245 for a free initial intake interview so Van Camp and Law can evaluate your case. Until next time, keep your head up and your wits about you. 